Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Bo, Go. The address is Shemot, Exodus 10, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 16. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on January 24th of 2006. Note, all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible Translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim v'natan lanu et torato. Baruch ata Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. The name of this week's portion is called Bo, and the word means go. It, um, it's the, the, the interesting um, fact that we're in the middle of the um, ten plagues, if you've been following the Torah portions. We're in the middle of God and Pharaoh having a showdown with Moshe being the spokesman for God and Pharaoh being the spokesman for the adversary, you could say. And um, God is now going to demonstrate his mighty power throughout all of Egypt. Now, he's already laid waste most of Egypt with the um, plagues that we've read about. But um, we're now into uh, the eighth plague, the locusts. And in this plague, leading into the ninth and leading into the tenth, Israel will be jettisoned from Egypt. God, uh, God is going to cause Pharaoh to let them go. And so now he's telling um, Moshe to go to Pharaoh um, to speak with him, and that God has made Pharaoh hard-hearted and his servants hard-hearted so that God can demonstrate the signs and wonders among them. But interestingly, it says go, and I imagine that this is the same thing that um, Pharaoh is going to end up saying to Moshe pretty soon. Go! Get out of here! Get away from me! My land is ruined, my people are ruined, your God has ruined me. Go! Get out of here! And then the next parashat uh, the parasha that we read, parashat um, Bashalach, uh, coming up next week. The title Bashalach means after he had let go. So um, it's an interesting story. At any rate, this was the command, Bo, of Hashem, as Moshe made his way into the audience of the Pharaoh once again. However, by the context of the portion, as I mentioned, we could just as well apply the title to the verbal imperative possibly given to Moshe at the mouth of the king of Egypt as he reached his final amount of patience with this fellow named Moshe. In the latter part of chapter 10, as well as chapter 8, 
uh, I'm sorry, as well as verse 8 of chapter 11, as we're looking forward to the portion, we see the confrontations of these two men drawing to a close, Moshe and Pharaoh. I can almost imagine Pharaoh commanding Moshe, Go! Get out! You and all that belong to you, go into the desert and serve your invisible God. Just let me and my people be. You've ruined Egypt, and if I ever see your face again, it will be you who is ruined. Later on, as you read the parasha, you'll see that this supposition of mine is not too far from the truth. This man, Pharaoh, he's an odd fellow, isn't he? By now, he'd indeed realized that his kingdom lay in ruin. Even his trusted advisors informed him of this grim reality in the opening paragraph of our parasha. Isn't it rather amazing that, um, if you think about it, even though the Pharaoh's heart was so hardened to the truth so that he couldn't fathom any other opinion other than his own, that um, even still, that Hashem allowed his closest counselors, you know, his advisors, the magicians, to see that to resist the Holy One of Israel was futile. In fact, their advice to him was to do as Moshe requested. <laughs> it's almost like they're on Moses' side. The Pharaoh's probably thinking, whose side are you on? Now, this doesn't teach that the advisors were now genuine believers in Moshe's God. But it does teach us that even unregenerate man, minus the supernatural caliphs of the heart, of course, um, unregenerate man is capable of recognizing, quote, when God shows up on the scene, end quote. God has a way of getting his point across to anyone. And it doesn't, and the, and the stubbornness of, of mere mortals doesn't thwart the uh, plans of Almighty God. In other words, even though the text doesn't tell us that these advisors came to trust in Hashem, the opportunity was certainly there. For they had, well, actually, had they hardened their hearts the way their king had hardened his, if they hadn't, I suppose, they too may have failed to recognize that this was no ordinary everyday God that Am Israel served. So maybe the hardness of their hearts blinded them to the true reality of who God was. But it certainly seems like God is, is, is extending the offer to say, look, I am God, there is none other. Why don't you just play by my rules? Just listen to Moshe, do it his way. In fact, rather than honor Moshe's request, Pharaoh tries one last-ditch effort to, how shall we say, bargain with Moshe. Rather than let all of the people go, why not just allow the men to go and worship this god of theirs? This request seemed reasonable to the king of Egypt. But Moshe wasn't operating under his own pretenses, and we know this. Moreover, he wasn't in a position to bargain with this evil man. He and everyone else, indeed everything else, cattle, livestock, those things, everything that belonged to Hashem would leave Egypt. Isn't that awesome? God's not leaving a single person behind, and God's not leaving a single animal behind. Everything that belonged to Israel is going to leave Egypt that day. Hashem had allowed this foolish resistance to continue so that he might demonstrate his mighty power in all of the earth. And as I mentioned last week, the Pharaoh willfully hardened his own heart. God pleaded with the Pharaoh via the agents of Moshe and Aharon. When it was apparent that there was no getting through this will for stubbornness, God saw this as an opportunity, I like to imagine, to use the Pharaoh as a vessel to demonstrate his holiness. In fact, we know that's what happened. Paul later on tells us that's what happens in Romans. Maybe we'll read that passage later on. At any rate, as we look at this, what a stark contrast to the purpose and calling that we as believers have on our lives. How do I, what, what do I mean? We are called out of the earth, out of Egypt spiritually, as Israel was literally, 
to demonstrate the holiness of our God in the earth. Okay, following me so far? We, you and I, those of you listening to this podcast, we've been singled out to become living witnesses of his mighty power and mercy among a world of unbelievers. The Pharaohs serve the same purpose, albeit in an infamous sort of way. You know what I mean? The choice is ours. Do we surrender to Almighty God and fulfill his purposes by allowing him to showcase our lives as a living testimony of his power and of his holiness? Or do we, like Pharaoh, stubbornly resist him until God has no choice but to confirm our resistance, thereby bringing upon us the judgment? Either way, if you think about it, people, Hashem will have his way with us. For he alone is sovereign. Either he will have his way with us in glory, or he will have his way with us in judgment. The choice is ours. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather he had his way with me in blessing and glory. The Torah teaches us that his word will not return unto him void, that is, without accomplishing that which it set out to accomplish. The word of Hashem to Moshe was that Israel would serve him in holiness and in truth. The Pharaoh foolishly placed himself in opposition to the will and fulfillment of this promise. And the Lord had to, how shall we say, put him in his place. It was in this setting that Hashem instructed Moshe to tell Pharaoh that the final plague was about to befall Egypt, the tenth plague. And it was this final plague that would, uh, as I mentioned earlier, jettison Israel out of Egypt. This next section is entitled, Pesach and the Death of the Firstborn. Compared to the previous nine plagues, the death, the, uh, the, the death of the firstborn is, in my opinion, a rather bleak and sorrowful plague. Here, the stubbornness of the ruler of Egypt had merited the judgment of God in such a degree as to bring about conclusive judgment on the inhabitants of his kingdom as well. In other words, no longer would the plague simply affect Egypt. Now, the Pharaoh's subjects would also feel the sting of Adonai's swift judgment as he slew the firstborn male of each household. This alone seems like a rather staunch punishment, until we realize amidst the judgment of the Holy One, he always provides a way for us to return to him. We find that Hashem instructed the people of Israel to what? Select a lamb or kid without blemish, slay it in the presence of the entire assembly of Israel, and sprinkle its blood on the sides and the top of the door frames of their houses. This is a very familiar story, uh, even among Christian circles. Afterwards, they were to roast the flesh in fire and consume as much as possible that evening. You can reference chapter 12, verse 1 through 10. This commandment, this mitzvah, it's the first official mitzvah of corporate Israel, according to our sages. And it's significant for our studies here to notice that this mitzvah came before the actual giving of the Torah at Sinai. Isn't that neat? I didn't know that until I really kind of just stopped and looked at it. We know from our knowledge of the new covenant of the apostolic scriptures that our sacrificial lamb, Yeshua, is being represented here. We know that the lamb in the Exodus narrative represents Jesus, Yeshua. In fact, even his method of death is accurately portrayed in the symbol of the blood at the head and the sides of the sacrificial post. It's, it's creating like a cross for um, a picture, if you will. The blood at his head, the top of the cross beam, and the blood at the sides of the doorpost, kind of the, the two sides where his hands were um, stretched out on the cross there. Uh, moreover, his sinless atonement is vividly portrayed in the choice of a lamb without spot or blemish. 
But what we might have missed is the fact that his death signifies for us the beginning of a genuine relationship with our Heavenly Abba. Now you say, Torah teacher Ariel, of course I knew that. But do we actualize this truth? Do we really internalize it? Why is it so true sometimes that we try so hard as believers to have a relationship with our Lord without first surrendering to his spotless lamb? Actually, we as humans try so hard to have a relationship with God. This is true in Jewish circles right now. Many Jewish people are desperately seeking God. I might interest them to know, it might interest them to know that God is desperately seeking them. And yet, they're unwilling, many of them, to surrender to the Lamb first. The picture is clear here in the Torah. I mean, first the Lamb comes into the picture. And then the relationship with God begins. Let's go back to the church um, application, though. We, Christians, or we want to be Christians, you, you, you true believers listening to this podcast know of people in your church or in your communities that what? They go to church, they read their Bibles, they have a spiritual um, air about them, they surround themselves with spiritual things. And I'm not saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves, going to church, reading the Bible and such. I think that's good stuff. Yet, many times, we know that inside of ourselves that there's something vitally missing from our relationship. And yet we still willfully resist the relationship to the Lamb. Why is that? Allow me to use a midrash here to um, make an application on my own. A midrash, by the way, is a homiletic application for those of you who don't know. When the people of Israel were instructed to participate in the first Pesach, the Passover, the Lord promised that whoever was obedient to this mitzvah would be spared the death angel as he passed throughout the land of Egypt that night. This was an act of faith on the part of the participants. You ever stop and think about that? He asks them to go into their homes and to sprinkle the blood of the lamb, the sinless lamb, the, the, the spotless lamb, on the doorposts of their houses. And in doing so, the death angel, the destroyer, would pass over them? Logically, come on. Blood on a house served no rational function in that day or our present day. Why would you cut open an animal and sprinkle its blood on your house? You know, why would anyone expect to receive protection from death by placing lamb's blood on his or her house? Unless they were either religious or superstitious. But to Hashem, this act of obedience signified a placing of one's trust in the word of the Lord. In this case, it was the word of Hashem through his servants Moshe and Aharon. Shemot chapter 12 verses 29 to 33 testifies that this is precisely what happened that awful night. The Pharaoh, however, in his hardened disbelief did not heed the wording, uh, the warning of the Lord. And when the angel of Adonai came to his house, what happened? His firstborn was slain. His son died and he cried. The Torah tells us that this was an, an awful cry. It was a great cry. In fact, the greatest cry in all Egypt, according to uh, chapter 11, verse 6, and chapter 12, verse 30. Such was the disaster of those who set themselves in opposition to the sovereign of the universe. Let's read the verse. 
Israel is my firstborn son. I have told you to let my son go in order to worship me, but you have refused to let him go. Well then, I will kill your firstborn son. Wow, who said that? These are the words spoken by Hashem. And they seem like they belong in our current parasha, don't they? Well, guess what? Amazingly, they're not found in this parasha. They're found in Shemot 4, verse 22 and 23. That's right. They're found in the very first parasha out of the book of Exodus. Even that far back, Hashem foreknew the willful hardness of the Pharaoh's heart. In his foreknowledge, he knew that Pharaoh would not let Israel go. I'm sure that as the current events unfolded before Moshe's eyes, that it was then that this awesome statement of Hashem's king to his remembrance because it was Moshe and, and, and the Lord that were t- having this dialogue uh, even before any of the plagues started. This final plague inflicted such terror on the people of Egypt that they hurried Am Yisrael out of their land. Get out! And they I guess you could say it was because they feared that they might be completely destroyed in the judgment. Who knows? Read chapter 12, verse 33, and that's what it seems to be indicating. It was also during this time that Adonai caused the people of Egypt to look on the offspring of Avraham with favor. In fact, as Am Yisrael left Egypt, the Egyptians nearly forced Am Yisrael to take their gold, their silver, their precious stones, and their fine clothing. Now this doesn't make sense. You know, your, your former slaves are taking off, and you, the taskmasters, give them your valuables? Something's not right there. However, we know that this was also promised of the Lord way back in Shemot chapter 3, Verse 21 and 22, Exodus 3, 21 and 22. At first, it might seem rather useless um, to cause the Egyptians to commit such a ludicrous act. I mean, why would a bunch of former slaves have need of volumes of such costly things? Especially where? Where are they going? They're going out to the desert. Why are you going to give them all this gold and good clothing? We like to tickle our imaginations in the 21st century and suggest that when Hashem saves his people, he would prefer to line their pockets with the riches of this world. I've heard that, that name-it-and-claim-it, get-rich teaching in plenty of churches. God saves you, and when he does, he sets you up as a prince and a king, and therefore the riches of the world are given to you. Hmm. Well, if that were true, then it would just be another prosperity message, and I'm not ready to hear any more of those. And it's one which we could do without in our parasha today. No, the real reason that Hashem caused his supernatural favor was that later on, these same recipients of riches, these same children of Israel, they would have an opportunity to give it right back to the one who possesses all riches in the first place. We'll read about that in Shemot chapter 25. But, getting back to my point right here in the parasha, uh, the point I stated earlier, the exodus from Egypt, I believe is very significant for us today. Very, very. Not only did our Lord deliver the descendants of Israel, but any Egyptian who placed his or her trust in Hashem left Egypt that day as well. Read chapter 28, verse 38. I'm sorry, read chapter 12, verse 38. I'm trying to get you ahead here, aren't I? In chapter 12, verse 38, let me just read it here. It says, the people of Israel traveled from Ramses to Sukkot, some 600,000 men on foot, not counting children. That's verse 37. Verse 38 says, a mixed crowd also went up with them, as well as livestock in large numbers, both flock and herds. The mixed multitude. 
the paradigm is set for not only delivering Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt, but also delivering the non-Israelites from Egypt. Do you see that there? Our Lord is surely awesome in mercy and grace. Why? Because he had no reason to accept the Egyptians. He did not cut a covenant with them or their forefathers. Yet, we see that his heart, as is demonstrated time and time again in the pages of the Torah, his heart is disposed towards those who are willing to demonstrate genuine faith in him. God does not play favorites. His offer of deliverance from the bondage of sin, characterized by physical Egypt in that day, his offer is open to anyone, anyone who will surrender his or her own will to Hashem's loving will instead. Amen? Amen. This next section is entitled, The Lord Our Deliverer. Am Israel had not yet received the Torah at this point in history. And yet, however, they were delivered from their bondage. Did you catch that? They had not yet received the Torah proper at Sinai. In fact, they're still in Egypt. They're on their way to Sinai. God set them free so that he could bring them to Sinai. We know that's true looking back in hindsight. But... As we realize now that they're being set free from Egypt without having yet received the Torah, what does this say to us today of the proper relationship to the Torah and trust in Hashem? What does it say? As summarized above, our trust in Yeshua is the beginning of a genuine relationship with God. The Lamb comes first. Similarly, the exodus from Egypt, a departure from the bondage of sin was the beginning of the people's relationship with Almighty God. Now, I'm not saying they didn't know God in Egypt. Okay, please don't misunderstand me here. I'm not dogmatically saying that the relationship that Hashem had with their forefathers, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, meant nothing. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm teaching you today that corporately, that is all together, their salvation relationship with Hashem as a people did not begin until this promise here. Uh, until the Exodus event was fulfilled. Corporately, God was teaching a picture to them, teaching a lesson to them. We also learned last week, um, if you recall, that Moshe and his generation would come to know Hashem in a way that his forefathers did not know. How? This event, this Exodus from Egypt, this was precisely um, what God was trying to teach them through the revelation of his name, yud Hey. Vav Hey, the God who will be. Uh, this was precisely as the God who delivered us from the bondage of the Egyptians, the God who set us free from sin and shame. This can also be characterized in the following example. So listen closely. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, Hashem and then Avram were agreeing to a covenant. Do you remember? This covenant declares that Hashem would deliver. And the future tense verb implies a change or maturation in the knowledge of Hashem. That Hashem would deliver the descendants of Abram from the hands of an oppressive nation exactly 400 years after they became enslaved. Remember? Go back and read it if you're not sure. God already promises to Abram earlier on, over 400 years ago, that he's going to deliver his, his uh, uh, descendants. This promise also detailed the elaborate giving of the riches of the above-mentioned oppressive people. That they would come out with riches. Um, 
it, it, it was to Avram's offspring that these promises were made. But what's significant for us to notice is that in our current parasha here in Exodus, this faithful word came to pass exactly as Hashem promised it. So take your thumb, put it in Genesis 15, read verses 12 through 16, and then keep it there and thumb over to chapter 12 of Exodus and read verses 40 through 42 and compare the two um, narratives. The number mentioned in our current portion, 430 years, might seem to contradict the promise of Hashem in Genesis 15.13. Indeed, it might also seem to contradict another portion of Scripture found, if you'll recall, in Acts chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, where in Stephen's discourse, uh, um, we hear about him talking about how long the children of Israel were in Egypt. So, at face value, it seems that maybe God was about 30 years too late until we disclose some unknown details of his promise. Let me turn to the Chumash here, quoting from the commentary to Bereshit, to Genesis, chapter 15, verse 13. We read, quote, There would be a total of 400 years of alien status in which would be included the 210 years of literal exile in Egypt and also the 20 years that Jacob spent with Laban in Haran. You can reference Parashat Vayitzay to see that. The servitude mentioned in this prophecy took place during the last 116 years of the Egyptian servitude, the last 86 years of which were a time of harsh oppression, when Pharaoh intensified the suffering of the Jews. So, the uh, Humash goes on to say that the calculation of the 400 years would begin 30 years after this vision with the birth of Isaac, since he never had the permanent home or the prestige of and honor um, enjoyed by Abraham, he and his offspring were considered aliens even during the years that they lived in Eretz Israel. And then after those 400 years, Abraham's offspring would be able to take possession of the land. Uh, end quote. Now I pulled that, um, that um, commentary there from Sarna's JPS Commentary to Genesis, of course the Jewish Publication Society, Stone Edition, Art Scroll Series, um, published in 1989. And that was on page 69. So, we're comparing the 400-year prophecy to the 430 years that the narrative talks about. Now, whether or not the sequence that, that the Humash just referred to us or gave to us, whether or not the sequence was played out exactly as the sages have suggested here is not really important. The important aspects to realize are this, okay? Number one, Moshe does emphasize that it was 430 years to the exact day. Clearly, Moshe knew when the sequence of time started. We may not know, but Moshe did. That's why he says four to thirty years to the day, and he says that in the Hebrew. So he knew that the offspring of Avraham left. He knew when the offspring of Avraham left Egypt, in chapter twelve of verse forty of Exodus, vindicating Hashem's promise of Genesis fifteen thirteen. And point two, it was a collective multitude of peoples that left and traveled into the wilderness to eventually receive the Torah. At Sinai. Those are the important points about this narrative, okay? Don't get caught up and say, well, gosh, according to Genesis and Exodus here, the Torah is wrong, and therefore if it's wrong, it can't be inspired, and if it's not inspired, then it can't be trusted. Don't get caught up and go in that direction, okay? That's what I'm trying to teach here. We have here at least two very important characteristics of our loving, heavenly Abba, okay? That's what I want to focus on, is, is the, the, the meat of the commentary, what is it that the Lord is trying to teach us as we read down through the narrative? Well, for one, he, the Lord, can be trusted at his word, despite the chaotic circumstances surrounding us. That's true back then, 3,400 years ago, and guess what, people? It's true today. 
You know, are you going through something right now? Is is life kind of spinning out of control and you're a believer and you're scratching your head and wondering, where's God in all of this? Well, guess what? He's faithful to deliver us completely, even before we have received his written revelation and put it into practice in our everyday lives. Even if you don't know the end of the story, if you place your trust in the Lord, he can and will deliver you. I promise you. To be sure, the children of Israel did not keep the Torah, the one that they're going to receive later on here, they did not keep the Torah the way that they would eventually be instructed to keep it after Sinai. God told them to keep his words, and yet we know they broke it continually. And still yet, Hashem honored their faith in him, demonstrated by the Pesach incident. What did he do? He brought about the greatest collective deliverance that the world has ever known. This monumental deliverance should have caused that people, both Israel and Egyptian, I might add, to understand what we're trying to learn today. That faith in Hashem alone is what brings about the freedom so desperately desired in the midst of slavery. Gosh, I just had to pause and, 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 and let that sink in. God set me free. God set me free. Has he set you free? Those of you listening to this podcast today, are you free? Or are you still a slave to sin? Are you still under the bondages of your own personal Egypt? You know what? The Torah teaches us elsewhere. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't tell us to come out of Egypt, come to the mountain, and then save us. No. He reached into Egypt, into our slavery, and drew us out, delivered us by his own power. I've got to state it plainly one more time for my brothers. According to the flesh, the Jewish people of who the majority are seeking to be justified by either keeping the law of Moshe or justified by merely being Jewish. They're ignorant of the Torah of Avraham. Here's what I would say to them. Oh, my brothers, according to the flesh, our ancestors were delivered, a symbol of genuine faith in the Holy One, before they received the Torah on Mount Sinai. The sequence of the covenants is crucial for a proper understanding of the righteousness of Hashem. Won't you, the Christians, pray for them that they will read the Torah portion and that they will see that God is trying to teach them to, that, that, that the Lamb comes first. The Lamb comes before the Torah. What are my conclusions for this Torah portion? This next section is, is the conclusion to my commentary. In the New Covenant book of Romans, chapter 9, remember I promised I would talk about that? Let's turn there. In the book of Romans, chapter 9, it says that Israel, striving to achieve the righteousness that the Torah has to offer, will not gain this righteousness until they realize that it is attained by faith and not by works. Where works here, as I mentioned, was understood to be a ritual of conversion for Gentiles wishing to become Jews, viz. covenant members. Read verses 30 through 32, and you can understand that in Romans there. Israel, in the first century, sought after the righteousness of God by works. And the works that they were presenting 
was the Jewish status that they were either born with or were selling, as it were, to the Gentiles. It's a sad picture, people. The first Pesach took place in the absence of a written Torah, but not in the absence of a previous living covenant. They may not have had the covenant of Moshe yet. The people left Egypt without a written document stating how they should serve their God. That's my point. The Torah of Moshe is a very, very important covenant document, to be sure. But if I could speak to the Jewish people today, I'd have them listen to me. Listen up. The Torah cannot take the place of the covenant made with Avraham. Moshe does not come before Avraham. The covenant with Avraham must be internalized by faith before actualizing the covenant that was about to be made through Moshe. In other words, in the correct sequence, the two perfectly complement each other. That's what I would say to my Jewish brothers and sisters today. You listening to this podcast that are members of a church, you listening to my um, teachings or reading my commentaries that belong to the um, non-Jewish uh, a part of Israel won't you please convey to your Jewish friends who don't yet know Yeshua the proper order of the sequence of events that needs to take place in the person's life before they can have a genuine relationship with God will you please explain to them that the covenant with Avraham signified by genuine faith in God comes before their relationship to the Torah of Moshe that they cannot put the cart before the horse that the lamb comes before Sinai? Will you please explain that to them? Today, as well as 3,000, 4,000 years ago, today the spiritual rules have not changed one bit. God has not changed the way that we come to Him. Our salvation, our exodus, through the sacrifice of Yeshua, is an effectual, life-changing, mental and spiritual appropriation that takes place where? In the midst of our sinful state of existence. The rules haven't changed. Only after we willfully place our trusting faithfulness on Hashem through His only Son can we ever hope to correctly be obedient to the written revelation of Hashem, that is, his Torah. Amen. Amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai lochenu melech haolam asher natan lanu Torah met lechaye olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, I say to you all, Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, 
without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.